So turn with me to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, probably right in like the middle of your Bible there. And uh, we're continuing our series, God's Eye View. God is giving us a God's eye view of our life, our world, eternity, wanting to give us an eternal perspective, a kingdom perspective. The Lord is wanting to break off selfishness or self-centeredness, the way that you know, he doesn't want us to view our life or our purpose or our calling or anything from a me-centered perspective. Uh, he wants us to shift away from that self-centered perspective and have Christ at the center of our life. The way Clint said it a couple weeks ago was it's not, my, uh, it's not God fitting into my life, it's my life fitting into God's life. My life in the kingdom of God. And so that everything you and I do Everything that we believe God for is always inside the kingdom, and that means submitted to, underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ, his leadership, that means his agenda, amen? His mission, his assignment, his glory, and praise God that in the kingdom, we're children of the Most High God who cares about us. But our needs will be met when we put his kingdom first, right? Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. You don't get the promise, all these things shall be added unto you, without dying to yourself and giving your life wholly for the kingdom and seeking. That means pursuing the kingdom, prioritizing, putting the things of the kingdom, his agenda, his mission, his values, his desires, what Jesus wants when you put him first and you seek that first and his righteousness, both in your own life and in the the, the lives of those around you, that's when he'll add to you. So if you're walking around saying, I don't know why God's not adding to me, it's probably because you are wasting your time, your money, your life, instead of submitting it to God. Because it's whose money? It's whose time? It's whose life? Whose? <laughs> Real simple quizzes around here, right? right? It's not your life anymore. He bought you with the blood, amen? The Bible says that he owns you. If you are a Christ follower, you have submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He bought you with his blood. And Clint made a really good point a few weeks ago. Some people commit to Christianity. But he said we need to commit our lives to Christ. We're not, we didn't, Jesus didn't die for us so we could just be comfortable. So that we could be selfish. And we died so that he could get his will done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? So thank you, Lord, for your grace. You, get, you find Psalm 2? Find Psalm 2? All right. Tell the Lord, just repeat after me, say, Lord... I open my heart to hear your word. Speak to me. I receive it. I'll obey it. I believe it by your grace. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, Psalm 2. Psalm 2, a God's eye view. Talk about a God's eye view. This is an amazing psalm. God's eye view right here. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. The the psalmist, this is King David, is singing this song and he's saying, why do the nations rage against God and plot a vain thing and conspire against God? And listen to what the nations say. Let us break their bonds. He's talking about people, institutions, governments, nations, systems of this world that are against God and God's ways. They don't want Jesus to be Lord. They don't want to follow his ways. They want to follow their ways, right? It doesn't matter if it's Hollywood, the educational system, our government, or any other government. They say, why should we have to follow God's laws? Why should we have to follow God's rules? They're a bunch of, it's bondage. We should break their bondage, right? That's legalism. That's control. And they want to break off the commands of God, which are good. Lead us to love people. Lead our society to wholeness and life. And they want to break that off. Antichrist philosophies. Humanistic ways of thinking, right? Systems, values, cultural things that rage against God and say, we don't want your ways, God. We want to do it our way. And you see it. You see it in the policies that our government's setting. You see it in the philosophy that, 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 that people educate our children with in public schools. You can see it. The nations raging against God. 
You can see nations raging against God, like Iran that wants to just blow Israel off the face of the earth. You can see the nations scheming and raging. And as we've seen, if you have a human perspective and you're afraid and you're worried because what you want is your comfort, because you think that the government or Hollywood is the cure for our problems? That's a human perspective. That's not a God's eye view. And, and this person is not just, King David is not just looking at this from a natural perspective. Remember in Ephesians 6, we do not war against flesh and blood, but against every, every principality and power in the heavenly places, right? Stuff that's influencing decisions and values in Hollywood or the government or other countries it's not just human beings coming up with that stuff. It's demonic spirits that are influencing and lying to people and, 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 and warping and distorting things because they don't want Jesus to be Lord. And so this psalmist, King David, is seeing from God's perspective and he sees what's going on in the hearts of people inspired by these demonic things. And is King David worried? No. Is God worried? Is God scared? Is God discouraged? Is God losing heart? Is God saying, oh man, we need to do this, and we need to do that, and we need to do this, and scrambling and worrying and trying to come up with human schemes to change things? No. Listen to what God is doing. This is a God's eye view. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Sometimes, some translations, mocks. <laughs> That's what God's doing. Well, it doesn't seem very nice. (laughs) The nations are raging, and God's sitting on his throne, saying, (laughs) you guys are foolish. You guys are silly. To the nations that are raging against him, not. He sits in the heavens. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Listen, he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And listen to what he says to the nations. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. See, listen, God is sovereign, amen? He is the sovereign almighty God who sits upon the throne. He is eternal, everlasting God. No one can change his mind. Now, he allows us to influence him in, in prayer, but nobody can get him to not be faithful to his promises. Nobody can stop him from doing what he wants to do. What is he saying right here? He looks at the schemes of the nations, at the schemes of the enemy. He looks at the plotting and the conspiring of all these people, and he laughs and says, I already know what I'm going to do. I have chosen who is going to be king. See, God is sovereign, and he will get his eternal purpose accomplished. And what is that eternal purpose? The plan of redemption, to redeem and to restore this world, right? And it's not necessarily, when he says, I have set my king on his holy hill, he's not necessarily talking about what the plan of redemption is. He's talking about who the plan of redemption is. Because who is that king that he has set on his holy hill? His only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what Christ means, anointed one or king. That's what it means. Christ means king. Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, is Lord, meaning master, ruler over all. That's what we declare. That's every knee will bow to him, every tongue will confess to him. What God is saying, this is like, this is happening. Psalm 2 is amazing because it's literally, you can imagine this happening in eternity. Like before even the creation of the world. The Bible says that God created the world for Jesus in Colossians 1. You can imagine God the Father and God the Son talking. If this is even, you know, like I don't even know how this would work. Just imagine the Father and the Son. And the Son says, Father, as you have loved me, I want to love like you have loved me. Father, let's create humanity that I could lavish love upon our creation. Father, like you have lavished love upon me. And the Father saying, yes. Yes, let's create people in our image. 
male and female. Let's create them. That they would rule over this planet that we would create for them, their home. That they would steward this, that they would, that they would be like us, that they would love like we love, and they would be holy like we're holy, and be faithful and keep their promises like, like we do to each other. That they would be, have healthy relationship like, like we would have healthy relationship and be in unity. And the Father and the Son getting all excited. And Jesus getting all excited. The Bible says this, you know. You don't know that. You've got to take level one of OSL. And the Father, it says the Father created the world for his son Jesus, and that Jesus, that the world was made to be his inheritance, his delight. That we were made to delight in him and him in us. All the nations. From even before the world began, Jesus is king over the world. And you can see that what God is saying, see, people misunderstand his sovereignty. God's sovereignty isn't that he's letting everything happen, right? It's a misunderstanding. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven, the Bible says, Psalm 119. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven, but is it settled on earth? No. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because it's not done on earth. His will is done in heaven. His word is settled in heaven, but not on earth yet. His, his kingdom comes on earth when people do his will. God's, but this is God's sovereignty that nobody can stop him from redeeming. God's sovereignty is that he sits on the throne. Nobody can make him move from the throne. When Adam and Eve sinned, did God lose any authority? No. Did God come into bondage? I mean, really, like, is it the devil and God warring? No. Not at all. The devil's a pawn. It's we who believed the lies of the enemy. It's we who, came, who rebelled against God, and it's we who became slaves of the devil. The Bible says that he is working in the sons of disobedience to get his will done, the Bible says. But the enemy plays us like puppets. It's not God who lost anything. He is absolutely sovereign and has been and will always be. His sovereignty is that he will redeem, that he made a promise to his son, Jesus. He gave the nations to his son, And his promise is that he will redeem and he will restore. And so what he says here in Psalm 2 is so powerful and so prophetic. I have chosen who is going to be king. The king of this world, the rightful ruler of this world, is my son, the only begotten son. He will be king. He will rule the nations with love. He will restore all things. Amen? And God speaks that. Do you hear? You got to understand. You got to hear how God says it. He's saying it with that fervent, that passion. He's saying it, honestly, in a deep displeasure. Did you hear that? He will speak to the nations. He will speak to anything that is warring against what he's doing. And he says, I have already chosen my king. You cannot fight against what I'm going to do. And we as his people, of course, have submitted ourselves to that, right? We said, yes, Jesus, you're Lord. Yes to your kingdom. So he sits on his throne and he declares, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Which, by the way, one day, that is literal, by the way. Jesus is coming back. He's going to reign on this earth from Jerusalem. The capital will be Jerusalem. Anyways, we'll go into that another day. Verse 7. So David actually is saying this, or even you could, you could say Jesus. David is prophetically saying this, but Jesus is actually saying this. Back to the Father. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. I will declare. Did you see that? I will declare. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to speak out loud. I'm going to declare what God has said to me. And so Jesus is saying, let me tell you what God has said to me. I'm going to declare it, what God has said to me. And God has said to Jesus, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that, of course, is quoted in the New Testament referring to Jesus. Today, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And listen to what he says. Ask of me will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possessions. Right? God created the world for his son, Jesus, and he promises his son, even before he ever came to the world, I will give you the nations, all the nations as your inheritance. They will belong to you. Now, it doesn't mean that like Jesus is going to like be some sort of oppressive leader. No, under his leadership, it's true freedom, true prosperity. But God is saying... You will be king, and I will give you the nations of your inheritance. This is the promise of God. This is the promise God made to his son. To us is redemption. 
To us, it's forgiveness, it's salvation, it's eternal life, right? But to Jesus, the Son, the Son of God, it is his inheritance. This is what he wants. Jesus, he created everything. He owns everything, right? Every star, the sun, the moon, the universe, all the riches, all the glory, all the honor, it all belongs to him. And yet, what does he want? He wants you. The Bible says that he died for the joy set before him. You are the joy set before him. You are the treasure hidden in a field that he sold everything to buy that treasure. He laid it all down for you. He left heaven, he left all the glory, and God became a human being, right? Jesus, perfect God, 100% God, became a man. The word became flesh for you. No greater sacrifice that God, the author of life, would die for your death, that you deserve to die. He paid the price you and I deserve to pay. He's the righteous one, but he bore your sin and my sin. Can you imagine the sacrifice? And he did that. I can imagine the conversation God the Father and the Son would have in eternity. Father, I want humanity to be my inheritance. Son, do you realize the sacrifice? Do you realize they will rebel? You will have to become a man and purchase them with your own blood. Do you realize the sacrifice? And I can imagine the Son saying, I want them. I want them. You see, the nations, you, me, every nation, it's his inheritance. And you and I both know, some of you have heard me go over these scriptures, but it's, you know, it's very, it's uh, needful for us to remember these things. You and I both know that in Revelation 7, 9, when this whole thing is said and done, when Jesus returns, it says this, after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The apostle John saw into eternity and saw the day that Jesus returns to this earth and saw what it will look like. He saw the throne of God where God is sitting in sovereign authority, right? And he saw before the throne of God and before the, th- the, the, the throne of the Lamb, same throne, before the throne, people who had, who had been sinners, who had been demonized, who had been rebellious, who had been broken, who had been hurting. He saw them clothed in white, washed in the blood, with crowns upon their head, worshiping the Lord, purified, sanctified, justified, glorified. The Apostle John saw the brokenness and the wickedness of this world, us, and saw it redeemed. And how many people were standing there? It says a countless multitude. A countless multitude. I'm convinced it's at least in the billions. Billions of people standing before the throne of God. And who were there? People from every nation. That means people group. Remember, Israel is a nation, right? So when you think a nation, don't think nation state like China. That's a really big nation state. That's not what it's talking about. There's no concept like that in the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's no concept like that. No concept of like Rome was an empire, China is an empire. The United States is an empire. When the Bible speaks of nations, it's talking about descendants of a father, a patriarch, like we, like Israel is the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel. Every nation, every tribe, well, if, there's, if Israel's a nation and there's 12 tribes in the, in the nation of Israel, then that means tribes or family groups, sons of that father. This scripture right here, and it's multiple times throughout the scripture, says that people from every nation, people from every tribe, that means a tribe is smaller than a nation. A tribe is a small family group. You guys following with me, right? The 12, do we need to go over the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Joshua had the two sons. No, I'm just around. We don't have to go over that. There were 12 tribes of Israel. How many tribal groups are there in the world today? How many tribal groups are there in Africa or just in Kenya alone? I remember one time I asked Isaac that question. How many tribal groups are there in China? See, we don't think in terms of family lineage, do we? I was preaching at the Forward Church. You know, we, we, we have a church that meets at our offices on Sunday mornings called Forward Church. It's a Chinese church. And I told them that. I said, Americans, we have no idea who our dad is. But you do. And they laughed. Chinese, they know their history much better than we do. And I'm sure sometimes they forget when they come to America. But sometimes in our melting pot of a, of a culture, we forget who we are. I mean, they call me a Caucasian. 
didn't come from the Caucasus Mountains. What are you talking about? I'm not a Caucasian. I don't even know what that is. You know, I mean, who are we, right? We come from, you may not know who your dad is, but God does. Your great, 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 whoever your great are. God knows exactly who the nations are and the tribal groups are, even if we don't. He says people from every nation, every tribe, every people, which is a large, uh, larger grouping, and every tongue or language, every single dialect, I'm convinced. How many dialects are there just in one place? Dialects. How many Chinese na- uh, languages there are? You know? I mean, come on, even in America, you got the people down in the south, they talk some different language, right? I don't even know what they're saying half the time down in the south. No, I'm just messing around. That's probably not a different dialect. And so we see in Revelation the fulfillment of that promise, don't we? Will Jesus get his inheritance? Will he? Will God fulfill his promise to Jesus? But what does Jesus have to do to get his promise? Psalm 2, verse 8. You're still there. Psalm 2, verse 8. What does Jesus have to do to get his promise from the Father? Ask. It's a conditional promise, isn't it? You know, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, but you know they're conditional. You've got to do what God said. Wait a minute. God made a promise to his only son? God made a promise to God? And yet... Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, has to ask for that promise? Are you saying that if Jesus didn't ask for that promise, it wouldn't happen? Yes. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand prayer. But don't worry, I'll explain it to you. Why would you ask God to do something that he promised? Yes, you got it. You just asked the right question. Jesus has to ask God for the nations that God promised Jesus. That's how important prayer is. Right now, the Bible says that Jesus is sitting at the Father's right hand, right? He's risen from the grave. He's sitting at the Father's right hand. He is God and man. There is a man sitting at Father's right hand. The only begotten Son of God in human flesh with scars forever. Nail prints in his hands and in his feet and in his side forever sitting at the father's right hand and what is he doing we've been learning he is the leader of the church isn't he he is building his church he is the king of his kingdom right the king of god's kingdom he is reigning amen and what's he doing according to the scriptures the primary thing that he's doing is asking two thousand years he has been crying out to the father who is sitting right there next to him, (laughs) this way. And he's asking the Father for the nations. How does Jesus build his church? Through prayer. Now think about it. When Jesus came to earth, what did he tell you and me? Ask, and you will receive. Seek, you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Did he say, maybe God will do it for you? Whenever you hear Jesus talk, does he throw in a bunch of qualifications? Well, you know, if this and if that, maybe this and maybe that. No, he speaks really confidently, doesn't he? Let me tell you the truth. If you ask, you're going to receive. Now, how come Jesus can talk so confidently? Because he's going to get his, his inheritance. He's praying too. Does it make sense? He knows. If I ask, I will receive. We don't ask God to do something he doesn't want to do. We ask God to do something he has promised to do. Does that make sense? We don't ask because God is not good, but because he is good. We don't ask to try to manipulate God to do something that he doesn't want to do. We're asking him what he promised. That's your confidence in prayer. 1 John chapter 5 says, uh, this is our confidence that if we ask anything in his, according to his will, he, it will be done for us. According to his will. That's your confidence. This is why we don't come to God in prayer and say, Lord, if it's your will. If you're asking, Lord, if it's your will, then you need to go back to the word to know what his will is so that you can ask according to his will. This is not a 
well, Lord, if it's your will, I'll do this or that. If it's your will. If you don't know what his will is, what do you need to do? You need to ask. If any man lacks wisdom or woman lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. If you don't know what the will of God is, you need to ask. He is the leader, not just of his church. He is your leader. He is your shepherd. And the Bible says that uh, uh, you are my sheep. Jesus said, you're my sheep. My sheep will hear my voice. He's a good shepherd. He wants to lead you by his spirit, with his voice. He said, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. If you don't know the will of God, ask him. You go to the word of God. So if you're, oh, I don't know if God wants to do I don't know if God wants to do that. Well, you need to go to the Word and find out what His will is. That's why we need the Word preached to us. That's why we need to know what the promises of God are. Amen? We need to know what He has promised so that we can ask Him to do what He said He would do. Amen? Man, am I the only one fired up? You fired up? You catching this? Anyone else? I'm excited. I'm pretty excited here. Okay. That's our confidence that He will do it. See, in your own life, you ask according to his will. I mean, that's, there's a lot that he's promised in his word. Well, I don't know if God wants to bless me, promote me. Oh, yeah, really? You don't know that, huh? You need to read the word. What, God wants you to be in bondage? God wants you to live in debt? Really? No, ask according to his will. The Lord wants to bless you. I don't know if God wants me to be healed. What? He already paid for it on the cross. By his stripes you were healed. Ask. Ask. Well, if God wanted to do it, he would just do it. What? Did you hear what God said to his only son? (laughs) And now you're in Christ and you're his son or daughter too. Amen? And what's true of Jesus is true of you. You need to ask. Jesus told stories. Like a friend who, who had, uh, he told a story in Luke chapter 12, a friend who had uh, a, a neighbor, a friend come over. A man had a friend come over to his house late at night and he didn't have any bread to feed him. In that culture, that's a, that's a shameful thing not to be able to honor your guest and to be hospitable. And so this man has his friend come over and he says, I don't have any bread. So he runs over to his neighbor's house, his friend, knocks on his door. Hey friend, open the door. I know it's late, but I need some bread because I got a friend who came and stayed with me. I, I need this bread. Now notice he's not asking for himself, he's asking for another. Right? Not all of our prayers are about us, right? Lord, give me my daily bread, amen. But not all, we don't just need bread for us, we need bread for others. God, fill me with your spirit. God, give me a word for people. Lord, bless me so I can bless others, right? Even financially, or whatever which way. So he's knocking on the door. God, he's saying, neighbor, friend, I need bread. And the guy in the door, and the, Jesus tells a story and says, I'm in my bed already, I'm sleeping, I don't want to get out of bed. Now the point of the story wasn't that God's grumpy or, or stingy. The point of the story was one thing. God doesn't just answer our prayer, God doesn't just do things just because he's good for us. I mean, uh, he doesn't just do things for us just because he's good. But because we persist in prayer. You have to ask. He is good. He wants to do it. But he needs you to ask. It's about partnership. And that's how this thing works. <clears throat> you remember, uh, remember the story of Elijah? In James chapter 5, it says that the, the uh, fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. We like to quote that. And then it goes on to tell us about James. I'm sorry, in James, it goes on to tell us about Elijah. In fact, it says this. Let me read it to you. He says this. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, if you go back in the story, you look at the story in 1 Kings 18, a little bit more complicated than that. What I mean by that is, when you read these, these words here, you think, well, he prayed. Well, Lord, I pray it would rain. Oh, okay, good. And he moves on. No, that's not how it happened. It says he prayed earnestly. Earnestly. What does that mean? 
with persistence, with fervency, loud, crying out to God. God, do this. If you go back to the story in 1 Kings 18, what happened was God told Elijah, go to Ahab, get the prophets of Baal, meet me on Mount Carmel, meet them up on Mount Carmel, because God said to him, today I'm sending rain. God told him in 1 Kings 18, I am sending rain. Told him what's going to happen. So uh, Elijah gathered, stands up there on Mount Carmel, and you guys all know the story. They are, he just said, hey, let's put two sacrifices out. You guys call on your God, and I'll call on my God, and whatever God sends fire, that's the God, that's the real God, right? So they do that. The prophets of Baal are all dancing around, cutting themselves, and Elijah was totally making fun of them, if you don't know. He was totally like, hey, maybe you guys should shout louder. Your God's probably going to the bathroom or something. Like, totally, like, making fun and everything. And, uh, and so they're just doing that, and finally it's Elijah's turn. He says, okay. So they go, and they get a bunch of water in a, in a drought. They probably got it from the ocean, and filled up the the, the, the uh, bottom part of the trough with water by pouring just tons of water onto the sacrifice, onto the actual wood and the altar and down into the basin there. And Elijah says, Lord, I thank you that you hear me. Now show them that you're God. And he called fire down from heaven. Boom, fire fell down from heaven, consumed the sacrifice, the water, the wood, everything. Boom, done. And everybody falls on their face and they say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God, right? And they kill the prophets of Baal. And, uh, and then Elijah looks at the king, Ahab, who was a wicked king at that time, right? That was the prophet, a lot of problem, the wickedness of that king. And he looks at the king and he says, I hear the sound of heavy rain. I hear the sound of heavy rain. He, Elijah was prophesying. There was not a cloud in the sky. It hadn't rained for three and a half years. But God told him, today it's going to rain. He heard the Lord and he prophetically heard the sound of heavy rain. So he prophesied it to Ahab. So he says, Ahab, you better get in your chariot and get out of here because it's coming hard. And you know what happens when it hasn't rained for a long time and then it rains? Flash flooding, right? So he says, you, you better get ready. Elijah got on his face before God. The scriptures say that he got on his knees and put his head between his legs and he cried out to God that it would rain. He stood up and he asked his, uh, he asked his servant, hey, go look. Because we're on a mountain. Go look. Is there, is there, do you see anything? Nothing. Well, must not be God's will then. Go home. Right? Well, I did my part. I'll just go home now. Is that what he did? No. Because the, uh, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Earnest prayer. Persistent prayer. Seeking. Asking. Knocking. That's what releases the power of God on earth. So he got on his face again. And he cried out to God that it would rain. And he got up. Is there rain? Nope. How many times did he pray? Seven times. We get all into this weird religious seven. Ooh, seven times. It has nothing to do with seven. It has to do with the fact that he prayed until what happened? His servant said, I see a cloud the size of a man's fist. That means that there was a huge cloud, a storm cloud coming from, from the Mediterranean Sea and rushing towards them. Elijah knew right there, I got it. It didn't start raining yet, but he saw it. The point is, a fervent prayer, earnest prayer, is one that prays until they get their promise from God. Well, we prayed two times for you to be healed. Hope stinks to be you. What? No, around here, we get on our face before God and we cry out again. Then we ask you, you done? You healed? No? We're going to cry out again. You're going to cry out again. So I didn't find a job today. Well, then you get up the next day. You cry out to God and go look for another one. Amen? The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman avails much. The power of God is released when you partner with him. Can you imagine if Jesus gave up praying for the nation? You know, he hasn't gotten his promise yet. Now, partly that's not true, right? Jesus is praying for the nations. He's crying out to God for the nations. Is his kingdom increasing on the earth? Are nations coming to know him? Is the church rising up in, in, a, in authority around the world? Is, is the church bringing transformation to cities and, and nations around the world? Is he? Amen? Isn't Jesus leading his church? Haven't I been telling you revival stories? Isn't God on the move? Amen? Jesus isn't dead? 
So is he getting his inheritance? Yeah, but has he gotten all of it? Nope. Why? Because little by little, little by little, little by little, Jesus continues to get what he asked God for. Amen? It's the same thing in your life. It's the same thing in your ministry. It's the same thing in the things that God has called you to. He wants to take territory in your life. He wants to bring increase in your life. He wants to increase his glory in you. He wants to continue to transform your character, your mind, your emotions, your will. He wants to continue to bring healing and wholeness to your life. And he wants to continue to fill you with his spirit and empower you and use you mightily to bring glory to his name on the earth. And he wants to continue to increase in that, increase in that, increase in that. And he is praying for you. The Bible says that he's our high priest and he's making intercession for the saints constantly. Constantly he's praying for you. Constantly he's praying for the Constantly. Do you think that when Jesus told us, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the field, which what he was praying for, that's a metaphor, pray workers to go in and harvest crops, He was talking about pray that there would be people who would go and preach the gospel and plant churches and make disciples. Pray that they would go and find those lost people. Do you think that he's praying that prayer? Do you think he just like told us, now you you pray for the laborers. Or do you think he might be up in heaven as our intercessor praying for that very thing? You see what I'm saying? He is praying and asking the Father, 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 raise up people who would give their lives to the work of the Lord, who would give their lives to the kingdom. Father, I ask you for laborers, people who would stop living for themselves and start living for me and for the gospel and give themselves, give their time and their money to go and make disciples. Do you think he's praying for that? I think he's praying for that. I think he's praying that you would become that laborer. That you would give what God has given you. That you would reproduce yourself and make disciples like he makes disciples. I think he's praying for your faith. I think he's praying for your sanctification. Why? Because he loves you. Because his grace abounds to you. I think he's praying for you. I think he's praying for the unity of the church like he prayed in John 17. I think he's praying for the nations like Psalm 2 says. I think he's praying for these things. Don't you? Prayer is not inactivity. Prayer is not sitting around and doing nothing. Prayer is releasing the will of God on the earth. It's powerful. And if Jesus is doing it, we need to do it as well. Amen? We need to be about the work of the kingdom. Let me just end with this. Let me share a little bit about our church here. In John 15, let me, let me read some things here in John 15 and then wrap it up. John 15. Jesus said in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much. For without me you can do nothing. The Lord is inviting us as individuals but also as a church to depend on him and live in abiding. In fact, that's what we're going to be talking about in the next coming weeks. Learning to abide in him. He says if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. That fruit is the fruit of the kingdom. It's character. It's, 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 it's all those things, it's those blessings, those promises, but it especially is referring to us pre- reproducing ourselves and making other disciples. So the Lord has called you and me and called us as a church to abide in him in such a way that we would bear much fruit, that we would reproduce ourselves. He wants more and more and more people to come to know him, their lives to be transformed, and for those people to go and impact other people's lives. And he's telling us that his will is that we would bear much fruit. Now listen to what he says. He goes on and he says in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, talking about that intimate relationship where we're depending on him as Lord, abiding in his word, meaning that we believe his word. He says, if you're abiding in me, my word's abiding in you, he says, you will ask what you desire and it will be done for you. You hear that? You will ask what you desire and it will be done for you. He's telling us how to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, just like the Father told him. Right? Father God told Jesus, if you ask me for the nations, I'll give them to you. Jesus is telling us, if you ask what you desire, it will be done for you. In my name, it will be done for you. Now, that's, that's the, that can be the desires of your heart that are, that are according to God's will. You want to see God do things in your life. You want to see God do things through your life. 
But don't you think if we have one agenda, one mission, if we're under the Lordship of Jesus and we're seeking first the kingdom and we're about the Father's business, if we care about His kingdom first, right? The kingdom is our priority. We think about His kingdom first. We give our, we give our gifts and abilities and talents to the kingdom. A lot of times I've noticed people give their abilities and their talents for their selves, for their business, for their job. They'll work hard for their boss in the natural. But they want to be paid when it comes to the things of the kingdom, like the church. I've noticed that. People will, won't use their talents for the work of the Lord. I should be paid for this. What? Who's your Lord? This is not about you, right? This is about the Lord. This is about His kingdom. I've seen that. I've seen people will work hard for their kingdom, but what about God's kingdom? What about this church, which is the local gathering of believers through whom He's going to get His will done, right? We're the people of His kingdom. We're on mission with Jesus. Uh, Sam laughed at me the other day because I was meeting with Forward Church. Him and I were meeting with the Forward Church, and I asked him what they need, and he mentioned, uh, they mentioned some needs that they have, and I said, you know, well, well, let me talk to the leadership team, which, by the way, leadership team, we're going to talk about this. So I'm not promising anything to them, but I said, Let's talk, let me talk to the leadership team. You know, maybe we should build out and put some classrooms here in the back of our, our thing. I said, because, you know, it's, it's not being used. The back storage area is not being used. It should be used for the kingdom. And Sam said, yeah, every space for the kingdom. And I said, amen. He was laughing. I mean, I know you, were, you, you took me it seriously, but he was kind of laughing. I said, amen. Every dollar, every square foot, every talent, every gift for the kingdom, nothing wasted, amen. I mean, he was laughing, but I was like, amen, that's exactly what it should be. We need to be giving God our first and our best in our money. That's what the tithe is about. It's not about the percentage. Well, it is, but it's about giving him our first, our best, but it's also in our time and our talents and our abilities. There's people who go to school. I've noticed people will go get an education. They'll work really hard to get an education, and that's not bad. That's good. We need to do that. But what they'll do is they won't spend time with Jesus. So it's like you're, practice, you're working for your calling, you know, you're going to school for your calling. Maybe it's ministry school like I went to, or maybe it's business or whatever, whatever your calling is, but they don't spend time with God. So you're basically educating yourself to depend on yourself. And you're working for you instead of doing what? Making sure that everything I do, I'm spending time with the Lord, living out of a place of dependence on Him and living for His glory. People, oh, I'm too busy. I, 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 you know, God blessed me with this job, so now I can't come to church. Right? So you're going to take the blessing of God and squander it. Well, God gave me a promotion, so I'm going to spend that money on myself now instead of tithing on it. People do this. God will bless them, and then they'll use it for themselves. Or they'll go into their educational thing, even people in ministry school, and they won't do it for Him, right? So you're training yourself to do it not for Him. And of course, we're not those people, amen? And the Lord is calling us to abide in Him and to bear much fruit. The Lord's calling us to put everything we are into that relation with Him and allow Him to produce His kingdom through us. And He's saying, ask what you desire. Isn't that interesting? Ask what you desire. And so if we're a people of His kingdom, we should want the nations to come to Jesus. Amen? Yeah? We should want people to be saved. Does the Bible say in 1 Timothy 2, uh, it's God's will that all people will be saved? So is it your will? If you have a renewed mind, if you have a renewed mind and you think like the kingdom, an eternal God's eye view you will want every person to be saved. See what I'm saying? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? You want the oppressed delivered. Is that your desire? See, if we're a people of the kingdom, we should be adamant. We should be weeping over the brokenness of this world. I don't mean emotionalism. I just mean that it should move us. It should bother us. Oppression and wickedness should bother us. The need for people to be saved should bother us. So let me, let me ask you a question. If his kingdom's always increasing, if Jesus is building his church, if he wants all people to be saved, does he want this to be a small church? And yet there's people who would rather have a small church, a comfortable church, than one that's growing. It's not about us. It's... There's only one reason why people plant churches. There's only reason, one reason why pastors become pastors. They want people to be saved and discipled. But what's funny is other people have other agendas. And we can't have two agendas in this church. We cannot have two agendas in this church. We need one vision, amen? And God is doing this, right? God is doing this. There is so much fruit in our church. Jesus said you will bear much fruit. There is so much fruit in this church. 
I look around and I see you, many of you, giving your lives to the work of the kingdom, giving your lives in your businesses or your workplaces or nonprofit organizations for the work of the kingdom. I see many of you going out there and ministering the gospel with power. I see many of you discipling other people. There's fruit. You know, honestly, there's people, when we look at videos of revival, or about revival, people will say, sometimes they'll say, I wish that was happening here. Dude, open your eyes. If you don't realize it's happening here, I, I feel sorry for you. It's happening. You know, sometimes we read in the book of Acts how they shared their goods, and people will say, I wish it was happening here. Really? 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 You don't realize that we totally help each other out here? That secretly, behind the scenes, people are giving money to one another? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I think it's just because you didn't have your eyes open. Or maybe you're not connected in community. Let me tell you, people in this church, there's fruitfulness. People are giving their lives away, people giving their money away. But is there more? Amen? There's more increase, isn't there? Let me tell you some of the things that I desire, that I believe are from the Lord, that I want us to pray for, that I want us to ask what we desire. I want us to come into agreement with Jesus, who is the leader, and pray and ask him to do your will on earth. Things that I think he wants to do in and through our church. Some of you have heard this before, but let me be, try to be specific, very specific. The Lord wants his church to grow and increase. Here's what I'm believing the Lord for, for this next season. This is what I ask God for. I'm inviting you. Let's come into agreement and have one agenda. I'm believing the Lord that he would double the size of our church. Not spectators. Disciples. Is that for me? Is that for me? Is that for you? No. Double the disciples that are in this church. And double the resources. And God is pouring out resources abundantly on us. He definitely provides everything we need and more. Let me tell you another thing. Why? Why do we want to do that? You say, Dave, do you want to be like a mega church? No, actually, no, I don't. I've told you before, our calling is to multiply disciples and churches. That's the vision that I see in my spirit. Multiply disciples and churches. Well, what does that look like, Dave? What is that? What is that? Uh, Multiply disciples and churches. That means more disciples and more churches. Really simple. What does it look like concretely? Well, right now it means let's cry out to the Lord for more disciples. Multiply disciples, Lord. Double the number in our church. We ask, will it, ta- will it happen instantaneously? No, that would probably be bad. <laughs> we probably wouldn't be able to handle that. But will it happen little by little? Amen? Happen little by little as we cry out to God. This is how it's always happened in my life. As I cry out to God, little by little, I get freedom or breakthrough or wholeness or wisdom or whatever I need. Little by little, he speaks. And this is what the Lord's doing in us. That means that if we're believing God to double, that means we're preparing kids and leadership teams. That's what we're doing. The Lord's been speaking to us as we know what the Lord's called us to do. He's calling us to make sure our life groups are whole and healthy, make sure the leadership structures, make sure the kids are ready, make sure we're ready to handle not only care for you and lead you, but also reproduce, amen? I want to invite you to believe God with me for doubling the amount of disciples and resources that we have at this church. Why? So we can reach even more. But when I say multiply disciples and churches, what I mean literally is multiply churches. What does that mean? That means having not one church, but more than one, right? Rather than becoming a mega church, what the Lord wants us to do is as we grow and have, we have the ability with the people and the leaders and the resources, the Lord wants us to multiply our locations. I envision at least 10 churches all over this area. And I'll talk to you more about why this is. But bottom line, we need more churches, not less, to keep up with population growth and to reach different neighborhoods and different types of people. The Lord has showed me at least 10 churches, it might take a while, 10 churches all over this area, full of, I don't know, 100 people, 200, 500, whatever. I mean, not necessarily large churches. You say, well, oh, I don't want to become a big church. Oh, you don't have to worry about that. We're going to be a small church. But can you imagine not 10 churches that are trying to survive on their own, but 10 churches that are all working together, sharing resources, doing OSL, interconnected through life groups, maybe once a month, all the churches coming together for Encounter God gatherings. Do you see what I'm saying? Maybe partnering together in outreaches. It's just like our life groups. We meet here on a Sunday morning and then we do life groups out during the week. The Lord wants us to have different gatherings. So what does the Lord want us to do? The Lord wants us to pray for that multiplication. What did Jesus say? Pray for laborers. I want to ask you to pray for laborers. That God would raise up people in our church who would be ready to plant a church. I believe, I'm believing, Lord, in a couple years, as we increase the amount of disciples, 
And in a couple years, because there are leaders in this church who are called to pastor and even plant churches to raise them up and to send out people. You say, whoa, you mean like really like give away money and resources and people? Yeah, this is not about us. You realize, right, if it was about me, it'd be all about keeping it here, right? Another thing the Lord wants to do is he wants to give us a facility that we can have as more of a permanent place for us. And I want to invite you to pray and ask God. We're looking for something that's not necessarily huge, but something that we can steward faithfully now, and then God will bring increase. Sometimes when I ask people, hey, look for a facility, they'll show me like the 20,000 square foot building, and praise God, if somebody wants to give us that for free, that's great. But most likely, most likely, that's not what God's doing. I remember when Michelle and I were first married, Michelle, out of the desire of her heart, okay, I don't know why I should share that, but anyway, she wanted something bigger. I said, look, this is all we can afford. We need a starter home. And I wasn't telling her, don't desire. She knew that. She knew that. I said, no, no, you can't like, just, oh, get that big one right away. No, we have to get the things that God has for us, even the blessings, and even in ministry, little by little, little by little. And the Lord has showed me, man, we need like a 6,000, maybe 10,000 square foot place, not very big, a place where we can do OSL, do Sunday mornings, and multiply churches from that place. Not a building for our comfort, but a building as a place, as a tool for evangelism and discipleship. Amen? And so this is what the Lord's doing. In fact, the Lord, I, many of you know, I've been looking for a year because God told me to. I said, God, I just want you to tell me where it is. He says, I just told you to look. Said, okay, just do what he says, right? And I'm telling you, man, we were at the rock conference, and I sense in my spirit, soon. Now, who knows what that means, but <laughs> it put in something, there's, there's times where it's like, the Lord just, it was, last year was like, look, 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 look. But I'm telling you, it's soon, right? So Gary's helping me to be diligent, to make sure that we get on it, because I sense that if we're diligent to look, I believe he's going to open those doors. He's going to show us where to go. So I'm asking you to pray for the resources, pray for that facility, pray for doubling of people, and pray for the doubling of those resources. Pray that God raise up laborers. This, this fall, we're going to be adding adopt-a-blocks because God's raising up le- le- leaders. We may even add life groups as the Lord wills. We're looking to how we can add life groups. And as the Lord teaches us how to have leaders of outreaches and leaders of life groups, God will raise up out of that leaders even of a church plant. And so we don't need to worry about 10 churches being planted. We just need to do one, right? We don't need to worry about how big God wants to do it. He's the leader of the church. Jesus is leading. We just need to ask him what we desire, ask him what we believe the Lord has shown us. So I'm telling you right now, that's what the Lord has shown me. And... Um, Yeah, that's good. That's a good place to stop. Why don't we stand up and let's respond to the Lord. Can you pray with me?